Comfort Monk Podcast. Uh, today, I was able to speak with Kip Malone of the band TV on the Radio for uh, the Comfort Monk Podcast here. Um, Kip's done some solo work, too. Um, he's got quite a few projects. The Rain Machine is one, and uh, gosh, I'm trying to think of what some of the other projects he's been involved with. Um, uh, he recorded this beautiful record with... with uh, with I think Tunde from TV on the radio contributed as well, but uh, it's this band called Tanarawan, um, and they brought them in and recorded, and uh, or collaborated, and that made for a, a really great record that is just absolutely worth spending some time with if you haven't already. Um, and we were able to talk about that a little bit, and we were able to talk about you know the TV on the radio David Bowie collab that happened back on their record Return to Cookie Mountain. Um, but I was really excited to talk with Kip. I, I grew up listening to TV on the radio. Uh, me and my friend Stuart in high school used to drive around listening to Desperate Youth and Bloodthirsty Babes. Um, and for some reason it was like the perfect soundtrack for the back roads and the country town I grew up in. But yeah, Kip's you know, been busy outside of the band probably more so than with TV on the radio lately. Um, but, you know, they've, they've really, back when TV on the radio was more active, they were just firing on, you know, they were just absolutely on their A game, crushing it. Um, and, you know, uh, I I I've, I guess I knew that they were a great band, but in my, in my research for the episode, I, it kind of just reminded me just how big... TV on the radio got you know mm-hmm. like it's like they they had a a long reach that is really impressive and uh, we were able to talk to Kip and talk about you know some of the times leading up to him joining the band and uh, you know you know a bit of what was going on when they were hitting uh, when they were first kind of hitting big and kind of where he how he feels about the project and where he's at headspace wise now. Um, He's in New York right now, and, and uh, I'm, I'm sure that quarantine's a little extra claustrophobic when you're in a, a place like that. Um, so, uh, you know, it was good to talk to him and, and kind of get a feel for where he's at, but I think it's going to make for a great episode, man. Oh, yeah, I'm excited to listen to it. I was lucky enough to actually get to listen to y'all's conversation while you were having it. It was really kind of eye-opening, you know. Everybody kind of wants their band to become super successful, and then... You hear about how brutal the touring and stuff is, and you know, yeah, it kind of puts in perspective that it's it's a job and it's a very hard job. You know, it's a hard job to get and a hard job to to keep your sanity with once you get it, I suppose, or at least as far as getting the job, meaning like being successful financially while pursuing music. You know, um, you know, but yeah, it ha- it poses some unique challenges, especially when you're trying to find a balance with you know, having a family and, and all of that. Um, but, you know, Kip was really gracious with his time. We spoke for a good long while, and uh, it was really it was really great getting to know him a little bit better. Um, but, yeah, uh, I hope you guys enjoyed the episode. If you feel inspired, check out some of Rain Machine or any of the other projects that Kip is involved with. Um, and revisit those TV on the radio records. They're great, and they really stand the test of time. Um, I'm know, planning on it. They, they only got more ambitious as they went along. Um, they kind of shifted gears musically later on, and but there, there's always a common thread. Um, 
and you know, there's me and Kip talk a little bit. There's a, a beautiful balance of minimalism and maximalism, you know, within the same track with them. They they explore some cool musical territory. Um, but yeah, uh, thanks to Kip for coming on the show, and thanks to you guys for listening. If you feel inspired to, please subscribe, rate, and review. It goes a long way. Enjoy. All right. Well, man, uh, you know, I've been listening to your music, whether it be through TV on the radio or your, you know, your personal projects and other things for, you know, for a long time. And uh, I, I was just uh, kind of wanting to start off with getting a feel for like kind of what your what your story is, man. How how did you fall in love with music to begin with? You know, I know for me, the story picks up with you joining TV on the radio, but I know there has to be so much before that. I'm kind of wanted to pick your brain about it. Sure. And my parents gave us or provided uh, music lessons for all the kids in my family. Um, my brothers play horns and piano and my sister, big sister play flute. And me and the ones younger than me all played uh Viola, violin, and cello, respectively, and uh, you know that was that was where, like, I don't know, any kind of formal musical training came from. But my parents also, you know, had a lot of had a, a pretty decent record collection. We listened to music together that way, kind of a what what seems now to be a, a fairly broad spectrum of different things. Well, that's awesome, and it adds up, you know, because, I mean, the music that you make seems to pull from a really wide range of, uh, you know, eclectic mix of of music that you're drawing from as inspiration. Um, Do you remember when you kind of shifted gears from those music lessons, you know, on on the strings uh, to, you know, picking up a guitar and kind of piecing together songs? Um. I think when I was uh, 17, I was preaching in Indiana and I had enough money to get this mandolin and I got a mandolin, which was the same tuning as a violin. So I started messing around on mandolin for a while, but, uh, you know, not, not in any kind of like traditional or bluegrass like way, just like shaking right. it, you know, yeah. improvising stuff. And uh, like a year later, two years later, a friend gave me an acoustic guitar. So I was, uh, I don't know, playing covers with friends at coffee shops and things. And I was in San Francisco, and a dear friend that I made there, Bonnie Hawthorne, who's a filmmaker living in Joshua, you know. Um, sold me a cheap uh, Fender Squire and amplifier that she had bought just to uh, fuck with her downstairs neighbor <laughs> who was a kind of like a messy house DJ who would uh, 
practice her DJ skills and keep her up all night. So she started leaving the electric guitar plugged in against the amp. <laughs> and once once that solved her problem, she didn't have use for it. She sold it to me for like a hundred bucks. And, uh, started playing electric and started a kind of like a improvisatory noise duo with a guy named Kelvin Pittman and uh, started playing shows around San Francisco and someone offered to put out a record for us so we recorded the album and recorded an EP and that was when I first started understanding uh, how fun studio time could be absolutely What what was the name of that project again? Uh, rocket science and the nigger loving faggots. Wow, <laughs> yeah. that is a name, man. Yeah, it was a, uh, uh, it was a different time, <clears throat> but also I don't know. I, I had a, uh, I don't know, satirical intentions, and also, uh, I don't know, you know, definitely trying to be provocative, but uh, also I, I think I it like translates I, that way, man. Yeah, okay. It was <laughs> funny because at a certain point in time in the Bay Area, a lot of what's happening or a lot of the conversation that became like broadened in the past like six years, seven years in the national discourse and like on the internet around like uh, who was allowed to say what and where and when was like going on full force when I was a young person living in the Bay Area. I mean, so there was a lot of, I had a lot of uh, pushback from people that I didn't expect it from because I I thought my intentions were clear. But anyway, I, I, that was the first first uh, band I That's made awesome. record, made a record with. And I'm proud of that record, actually. There's like probably like 200 copies in the world or something, but so yeah. outside of those copies, uh, is it something that could be found, uh, you know, on a, a YouTube or, or wherever? Because I'd love to to get my ears I, I on that. Honestly, I don't think it's been digitized. I mean, someone someone may have digitized it, you know, for their own personal. But like, I, yeah, that's all right. I'll just Maybe. scour Discogs until I find yeah. the tape or something, man. <laughs> yeah. Well, that well, that's awesome, man. So kind of where, where does the story go from there I know I mean eventually you get back to the east coast um, were you hanging out in uh, San Francisco for a good long I, while I was there for six years I, I moved there with uh, um, my friend Aaron Apes who actually died maybe today some years ago wow and uh, we he was writing music he, he his intentions were Moving to California from Pittsburgh with to make films, <laughs> but uh, and he he did that, but uh, he was also writing songs, and we were in the same flat, and <clears throat> with a handful of other folks, and started making home recordings together, and the the person who put out uh, the Rocket Science record also put out uh, the first. A Ron record, which is okay, the, and uh, yeah, I, I, was I was checking out that Iran stuff because uh, it had just been a while since I'd 
uh, revisited it, man, and it's 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 a interesting departure from you know some of the other music that I'm familiar with uh, being associated with you. So I'm glad that you touched on that a little bit. Yeah, I I learned a lot in the process of doing that, and it was fun to like. We would uh, oftentimes set to just finish the song in a day, and like after whatever our respective shifts at different jobs were, come back and four track in the living room, you know, until five o'clock in the morning. And yeah, yeah, I, you know, it's a very a lot of a lot of great music comes from kind of having those limitations. You know, like we've got the four track, so we you know we we can't we can only make this so layered and like you said you're working on a time constraint like post shift uh sometimes like it forces you to put your your mind in a new direction putting in a little box like that so i'm not surprised that you guys came up with some gems with that project yeah definitely um as as valuable as supports and uh an engineer and all those things can be definitely inspiration and and uh, and constraints can yield some fucking magic for fucking sure. Absolutely, man. So you're hanging out. You're you're making these Iran records in your in your time or in the spare time that you can get. Um, where how how's the story progressed from there? Where where did you guys go with that project? And what kind of made you guys uh, branch out into different directions? I think we made a couple records in. SF and in kind of the same way in, in from mostly tracking in the flat and just not really knowing what we were doing but like just doing it and having friends help mix and things uh, knocked up my friend Anna and she wanted to move back to Jersey to be near her family to have the baby and I moved to New York so I could be uh, a father actively, you know. Absolutely. So I ended up in New York in 2000 and yeah, actually Aaron moved to what was working on a, on a film called Until the Light Takes Us about the Norwegian black metal scene. Oh yeah. Basically moved to Norway for a couple of years and then shoot shooting and then he moved to New York after that. Uh, in the interim, I had started, I think, playing with Dave and Tunde a little bit. We were just kind of started. And I was also playing with uh, my friend Mark Orleans and Kevin Shea in a band called Fall in Love, which we actually, like, I played, we played for a few years together, and that was a fun project. Lots of improvisation, but with some song structure both two really fucking incredible musicians actually uh mark has moved out of like rock into more traditional and went from electric guitar to pedal steel to now he's obsessed with mandolin and then bluegrass circles um and kevin is a drummer and uh performance artist and is a band called Taliban, which if you ever had the opportunity to experience him in that motel. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm very, definitely going to look into that. Very, very interesting stuff. 
Um, yeah. And, uh, so I was like, you know, it was, there's a, a level of, uh, fluidity that can exist as a musician when projects are, are like, you know, for fun. Uh, as soon as TV on the radio became like a full-time touring band and it became kind of a job, I started prioritizing that because I felt like, uh, momentum in the writing process I hadn't felt before and um, and I had to think about uh, making money as a father absolutely man which uh, and it felt like it had some potential even though that you know seems like a pipe dream sometimes sometimes you know something uh, and it you know and it it went pretty well it went better than than our expectations for sure absolutely man so yeah i kind of wanted to pick your brain a little bit about that you know that that turning point you know when you know at one point in time tv on the radio was uh kind of maybe a little a little bit closer to equal parts of a uh you know a time consumer for you or at least you know not quite as dominating when was what was that process like of shifting from from you know, focusing down on this on this project, it really like. I mean, it seemed like, you know, you guys put out the EPs and then, uh, you know, Desperate Youth and Bloodthirsty Babes, and it just seemed like there was not a whole lot of time after that before you guys were like really in the throes of it. Um, how what was that period like? Kind of trying to balance. I mean, it sounds like you had so much going on with other projects and fatherhood. Was it, uh, you know, what what was that balance like? Well. It, it wasn't balanced. Like, it becomes... It it, it, it didn't become consuming right away, but definitely, you know, between... I feel like we, we had a couple of shows out of town after Young Liars EP was released, and then... Uh, and then... From the time that the first LP came out uh, on Touch and Go, we were on the road. Like I think we played 280 dates in the first year, and uh, so awesome. there's there's no way that it just doesn't become the the primary thing. There was no balance. There was no balance actually. Yeah, like. It's exciting and it's, you know, because it's fun to play music and it's fun to play music when there's like... At, at that point, I probably spent as much time playing in my room as I ever did to an audience, even though I was playing plenty of gigs, you know. Right. And it, so it's a whole it's a whole other thing to bring to people and have people coming excited about it. Absolutely, man. You know. At which point, the crowd is doing as much work for you to make the experience successful um, as as you are. Yeah, it, but it it definitely <laughs> does not make you available for relationships or for regular parental responsibilities if you are traveling for most of the year. It definitely, you know, that it 
it ramped up from like there into like 2006, 2007. But after that, it started to get a little bit more balanced, and then and then more and more it became less time consuming. But I would also say that the less time consuming it became, the less it's not like uh, yeah. If I, mean, I listen, if I listen to the records, which I don't. But I mean, I have a million times in the process of making this. Uh, there's like a excited confusion that is a perfect reflection of our states of mind and how we were doing the work, and then kind of fucking figuring it out a little bit with their science. And so, like, whatever voice we come to collectively, I feel like is like delivered with more control and intent on that record yeah yeah I mean that's definitely like a little bit of a sonic turning point for you guys too I feel like yeah. science I mean yeah and and then Nine Types of Light sounds like Siddick moved to LA to me and but that's my that's my association with it but also like it I feel pretty detached from it actually yeah but I'm happy if it brings people joy yeah, yeah that, that's understandable with a with an output that is uh you know you know there's been a lot of music that's come out from this project you know and of course you're gonna feel a little more attached to some of it than others but you know it's kind of it, it's awesome that you've been involved for it for so long and that we get to watch that growth um speaking of those like 2006 era times like so 2006, I'm hanging out in, in the small town that I grew up in. It's Georgetown, South Carolina. And I had a had a buddy who I had turned on to TV on the radio. Um, so, you know, like when you're, when you're that age, a friend with, with similar interest musically means a lot. So we would spend a lot of time kind of just uh, talking about whatever record it happened to be that we were obsessing over. Um, you know, we're driving around aimlessly listening to staring at the sun and then you know kind of feeling like it's our little uh our little secret even though i don't think that was the case at the time but in georgetown Mm -hmm. it feels that way you know um and then the next record uh we hear david bowie's on it and we're like holy shit man (laughs) like one of our one of our favorite bands is like now you know collaborating with you know undeniable legends um so I kind of wanted to hear a little bit about, you know, one, how that collaboration came to be and, like, what that what that felt like. Because, I mean, I, you know, it just undeniably had to feel like an accomplishment to, or, you know, as a band to be getting to that level, you know? It's definitely an honor to work with uh, an elder who was so influential and so uh, inspiring. Yeah, really the time I remember feeling like, all right, there was so much excitement and like, like excitement near panic in the studio the day that he was coming. That I was like starting to get angry about it a little bit huh. because I, I was just like, we have to be working on record and like it's we're not we're not making a, a brothel for for David Bowie. We're it's a studio that's just like, you know. So I got two. I I probably aired to the side too much of business. This is business. Kind of. Right. Right. You know? Yeah, I could understand Actually, that. But so I, I was probably acting kind of like a killjoy, but I was like, I was 
you know, wanted it to go well and didn't want it to be too fanboy about it, you know. Right, that, that's how you keep it productive, right? <laughs> he was coming to work on something that he wanted to come work on that we that we cared about, you know. Like like all the other musicians that had come through on that record, yeah. But obviously not like all the other musicians that had come through on that record because, uh, yeah, magic, a magic dude, Yeah, I mean that. I, I feel you. I mean, it's like you know, you kind of you want to keep it in check, keep the. Uh, you know, the creative agenda focus, you know, you're there to, to make that song, not there to just gush over the situation. Um, I'm sure he appreciated that too, you know, I mean, having a crew that was prepared to work and not just to ask him for Ziggy Stardust stories, you know? Yeah. He's pretty great. Pretty great. And he, it means a lot to me still that he, like, hyped us and participated with us. Well, you got to think, man, you're in, you're in good company, too, as far as, like, bands that he was, you know, because Bowie was notorious for being pretty uh, aware of, of bands really early on, whether, you know, like Iggy Pop, for instance, mm-hmm. or, or Devo. Um, so, I mean, you're in that you're in that canon with them now, which is pretty good company, I would say. Yeah, I, I don't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't shake a for sure. <laughs> you know, as much as I could talk about the various stuff that you've done with TV on the radio, because, you know, obviously you guys have done a lot of great work, um, I really wanted to talk to you a bit about some of what you've done outside of the band, um, just because of, I've been absorbing a lot of that lately and really in, in, enjoying some of the, some of your approach to it, particularly with the, uh, with the rain machine stuff, it seems like, and you know, I could be off base here, but it seems like a pretty deliberate uh, focus on minimalism a little bit. Um, and I could be wrong about that, but I kind of wanted to hear what your thoughts were on minimalism as a whole and embracing it within music. I mean, I don't know if it's a. I, I think it's just. I think it's just that it's a solo recording. Those are mostly solo recordings. Yeah. And uh, especially at the time I made that record with Ian, uh, in the, when compared to time in the studio TV when there's like five of us plus whoever else was in the room like throwing ideas at the wall, like the track count would get it started. It started getting cleaner from Dear Science on, but like <laughs> and there'd be like sessions with like just like as maximum maximum amount of track. Right, like, right. Just, I, I, that's really actually kind of what what stuck stood out to me. You know, is that well, but even within TV on the radio, you know, you guys, it'll be so layered, and I'm sure that the track count is is wild, but there's still it's like a balance of maximalism and minimalism because it might be a, this super textural, layered, beautiful arrangement, but the the groove underneath it has been a loop that's been like kind of digging in for you know a few minutes or maybe even the whole song. Yeah. So it's like 
within the I, it's rare that I listen to one song and at the exact same time I'm experiencing like somebody exploring both minimalism and maximalism in such a a unique way that just and it works you know I mean it 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 it's kind of I think that's a at least from what I gather it's a, a big part of of TV on the radio sound. Yeah, I would I would agree with you that uh, the so like when going into the studio alone. Um, it's just like, I don't know, just like the, uh, much, there was a constraint of like what I can actually do as a musician or what I could actually do as a musician at that point in time. Um, and also just like, I was just, my, you know, my, I, my ideas so like if there's less <laughs> there's, there's never to be less um and also i i at the time and even now i i appreciate music that is like simple and that doesn't have a lot of elements uh i that's not the other kind of music I like, but I like that. And I wasn't able to like really express that or scratch that itch with TV on the radio. And I, the like Rain Machine record came out of playing solo shows. And uh, so there's like a solo performer uh, aesthetic going, going on. And it even in songs that are more uh, flushed out. Yeah, I mean, I, I, uh, when I was digging, you know, back into some of your, you know, your solo work and work outside of the band, um, I came across this video of you playing a, a, a set at the Cake Shop in New York, and uh, I don't know if it was, you know, if it was booked as Kit Malone or if it was Rain Machine, um, but, you know, it was definitely in the, a similar vein to, to the Rain Machine record, so I can see how that kind of is just a natural progression from your live solo work. Um, but those records are great, man. It, you know, it, I'm, I'm with you that there's a lot of music that really speaks to me that's doing a lot with a little. I'm, I mean, of course I love really expansive, you know, creative projects that, you know, are more detailed and layered as well, but you're right that there's there's something to be appreciated about when somebody can move you with with just a couple chords and a good vocal melody, you know. Yeah, I uh, I've I've been uh, messing with modular synths in Eurorack for the past few years, maybe getting close to ten years, but. But really messing with them, I'm like, I, I'm not like a. I'm I'm only now getting into trying to make beats with them because for the most part I was just like doing atmospheric or like harsh noise stuff for a long time. Um, I mean keyboard keyboards are a, a world of a rabbit hole of them of their own, man. You can have so much yeah. fun digging into that, you know. Yeah, and I'm, I'm, 
it's one of it's something that brings me a great deal of joy or I had for a long time. But I I struggle to incorporate it in any meaningful way into songs in the in the way that I am used to writing songs or how how I hear songs. Some of them become more like atmospheres in these patches. Um and I think uh, I'm, that's my goal. That's what I'm trying to do right now is like, uh, figure out a balance of making like a simple rhythmic patch that has some, um, you know, interesting, but not overwhelming modulation and change. And, and then writing over top of that with, just the guitar and maybe one other synth or something. That's what I, how I've been trying to write uh, that's great, this man. in the past year. Are you working that, on a specific, the, a specific record or anything, or just kind of mostly? I mean, I don't know. It's funny. I, I, <laughs> I, I've struggled to find. Uh, a home for more like rain machine type stuff and so mostly I just like stayed busy with other things like ice balloons and uh doing some toying with them over the past few years and and studio work with them but with modular synths and other synths uh, on those records but uh mostly right now it's just the keep making music and writing and not losing my mind. I feel you and on that, man. I mean, just to create and just keep your hands and brain busy regardless of what the uh, what the end goal is with the track itself, you know? Yeah. Do you have a bird in your house? Or is that in your... <laughs> we are, we oh, are practicing social distancing the best we can, so we've been, uh, we've been recording out on the porch just uh, because me and the, uh, in my my partner here, Eddie, who kind of works the dials, just so we can, you know, collaborate but keep a good distance and not be in each other's quarantine space. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I actually kind of like it. Today's backdrop is a little bit of wind and a couple chatty birds, but some days we've we've been blessed with a chainsaw or, I mean, mm-hmm. two or three times the next uh, the neighbor seems to love to mow the lawn right when we're working on this, which, thankfully, he seems to only want to mow when the guest is talking, so we can kill my <laughs> mic, which is good. So right. we, we were talking to Kira from Black Flag, I guess a couple of weeks ago, and uh, the neighbor was chainsawing something, and we, we were able to cut most of it out, but at one point he finally gets through whatever he's chopping and just screams, hell yeah. <laughs> and I, I was like, we got to keep it, man. I know that the, the audio files will hate us, but I'm so proud of that guy for chopping whatever he was trying to chop. But, uh, so, uh, you know, you've spoken a lot about, you know, you know, the, the shift into solo work and, and, and specifically kind of just having fun playing keys lately and exploring that. Is there anything like keys oriented music, uh, that has been inspiring you and kind of that you've been listening to while you're taking the journey into keyboard nerddom? Um, I mean, 
for true nerddom, it's like it, it's as nerdy as it gets. Um, and but as a kind of typical of my experience, I'm not really listening to the music that is like the music that I make. Although there's people, there's definitely people that have that are inspiring, like uh, call it Visible Cloaks. Have you heard that project? I don't know if it's, I don't know who it consists of. If it's one person or multiple people, I don't think I have heard it, but I'd love to hear about it. Visible Cloaks. It's it's uh, instrumental electronic music, and it sounds like un unnaturally otherworldly clean. It's like, it's, uh, it's, it's so inorganic sounding as to, but it, it doesn't sound plastic. It, it sounds like, I don't know, like not carbon based or something. Right. But, but plenty alive. Um, but that's something that comes to mind. Um, I've been listening to a record that is, uh, I'm, I'm sure, maybe even hacky to mention, but I don't care. I really like it. Uh, Hiroshi Yoshimura's record Green, which I only ever saw on, I listened to it off of YouTube a lot. and uh, But recently I noticed that there was a iTunes version of it. It's like a early '80s, like kind of new agey self record or uh, ambient scene. I don't know how you classify it. Uh, Beverly Glenn Copeland has been super inspiring to me in the past couple of years. Have you listened to him? I don't think so. What's you gotta a, check him out. What's uh, a good starting point for yeah for that? Is there like a, a good record to start out with or, or an introductory? Uh, um, keyboard the, Fantasies. Nice. Yeah, I'll have to check that out, man. Thanks for the recommendation. He's a, he's a, a queer elder, lives in Canada and uh, with his wife and uh, made, some, made some records in the early 70s and the, and then just like was like basically making cassette releases, <laughs> and then uh, someone was playing her records on the on their show out of the UK, out of their radio show, their like you know digital radio show, and this Japanese uh, independent record store found them and contacted them and bought all his like back stock and sold out pretty immediately and went from like having not played for audiences for a long time to touring touring the world in the past couple of years and making new music with young people as he's in his 70s wow. pretty pretty inspiring person I got to interview him uh, for the hardest part at uh, PS1 last year and that was one of the highlights of, at least one of the highlights of, of music for me for a long time. Wow. 
That's awesome. You know this woman, Car- Carmen Villain? That's not ringing a bell. Carmen Villain, um... has a record called Both Sides Will Be Blue, I think. And that record is kind of like a electronic, it's kind of like in the same, I, I hate using the term new age because it's so loaded with bullshit. <laughs> but uh, it's, I don't know another word to describe specifically the sound. But that was a massive to me as a, as a child and as an adolescent, but like, I understand it now as time goes by, or increasingly I understand it. Right. Um, there's a there's a there's a bunch of stuff. Actually, there's, uh, as far as like a pop uh, group that's like synth heavy that I think is a uh, I think Little Dragon. I mean, every you know. They they do very well for themselves. I'm sure lots and lots of people hear them, but I think that they're like really good. I think that they I don't spend a lot of time listening to new albums of of artists lately. Like I've followed the trend of everyone else of of listening to things streaming or listening to things just like. Even if I'm not listening to things streaming, I'm still like making plays on my phone or something on iTunes. And so I'm having been like getting into albums lately, but I keep finding myself like putting different uh dragon songs on on mixes. They keep uh writing hits as far as I'm concerned. They're hits to me at least. That's awesome, man. I'm glad to hear that you're uh, you're developing a record collection that's at least as, if not more so, uh, wide-ranging as the one that your parents exposed to you when you were a kid, you know? Uh, it seems like, uh, it just seems like with everything you've done that you're you're constantly listening to just a little bit of everything, you know? Um, and it, it shows in the work just because there's a... You know, most things that you're doing are hard to pigeonhole. They don't really fall into a neat category uh, musically, which is really exciting because, I mean, specifically, you know, the TV on the radio stuff, I, I just feel like you guys sound like TV on the radio to me. It's There's not a whole lot of classification outside of that um, that would just fully and accurately kind of express what you guys are doing. Um but uh, you know, speaking of kind of just pulling from you know a ton of different musical directions, um, you know, a little later in your career, you were working with with Tanara Win. Is that how you pronounce the project? Mm-hmm. So, uh, could you tell me a little bit about you know how that project came to be, and just you know that seemed like it was hitting pretty much right at the same time that you know. I would imagine that was a pretty busy time for TV on the radio, or at least like a break in between busy times. Um, just kind of what it was like shifting gears towards that project, and I mean, it's you know, it's definitely 
touching on some new musical territory for you. Yeah. Honestly, that, uh, I, I wish it had taken more time. So it was, uh, talking about highlights of, of, uh, my musical life thus far was definitely one of the highlights. I saw them on Jules Holland on tour back in the day on some early TV tour. We were in Europe. We were still sharing rooms, so it was it was early, which is funny to say because like I I still to- make tours where like the idea of even getting a, ho- a hotel room is is would be like an extreme luxury. We'll just be sleeping in the van or not sleeping and getting to the next town. But so definitely not. Right. Yeah, you're, you're but still experiencing is, but, all all types yeah, of touring. <laughs> yeah. I've experienced a bunch of different things. Um, uh, but I remember watching them and being entranced and saying to Tunde that, like, we have to meet these people, we have to play music with these people. And then uh, we were playing Coachella, and my friend Ian, who produced the Rain Machine record, uh, came and was hanging out, and he... Uh, was like you should go talk to Tanaro and the their uh, trailers right over there and I was uh to shy to he forced me to and they were super nice and they invited us to have tea and like just sat and had tea with them, you know, which is like, you know, the really super strong black tea with a shit ton of sugar and and some mint in it that uh, basically like drink around the fire the desert all the time and at cafes too in town and whatnot but like they're show, showing me photographs of of their making of their last record which was all in the desert not even you know in a tent just like and well positioned between like so and, and Outcroppings of locks, so that the the acoustics were right, and uh, like showing me and like telling me that I had to come, and I very much and, you know I was <laughs> immediately on board to 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 come over there to Algeria to the Sahara to to do anything, and I would have just like I would have just wrapped cables to be a part of that experience. Right. You know? um, but I kept it pushing and got me and Tunde over there. And uh, we were there with them in the desert for a little more than a week, a couple of trips into town, a town called Jeanette in the south of Algeria. And uh, hung out. It was it was amazing. It was an amazing experience, <laughs> and it, it kind of held the whole. For me, it held the whole arc of of that that creative projects generally generally hold for me, which is like 
excitement and then frustration and ego battle and then dissolution of the ego and and what's uh it's realized what needs to happen just to make the whole thing happen and you know get getting out of one's own way to be part of a harmonic part of a team and all of that which i have found takes it often takes uh the length of a record or the length of a film project or the length of a, you know, most creative projects I've engaged. I've had the same uh, film battle or process, I guess, in my head. That happened all within a week there, but simultaneously I was being turned on to like a different lifestyle and folks that have been living this way in, in the desert for as long as anyone can remember, and amazing culture, amazing amount of hospitality. Um, the the that band is folk heroes in that part of the world. So like the fact that they were around that, that like people were coming from from pretty far to hang out and 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 camp and party, you know, and uh, there's so much music. And so everyone in the camp could play like crazy and like all these beautiful voices and like from the cook to, you know, the youngest engineer, everyone was like, could kill it musically. And then just like at a certain point, towards the end of the process, hundreds of folks came out and uh, were camping in the desert I don't say camping is my word for it because they weren't camping. It's just like just doing their thing and uh, camel caravans and amazing people, amazing people. And as I, I grew up in Western Pennsylvania and I grew up in the suburbs of Pittsburgh, but as much as it was suburban, it was also very country in a, Lots of like uh, country people. I grew up around a lot of country people, and a lot of like the xenophobia that people can associate with country people in the United States, and a lot of the, uh, which is just something that is a condition culturally, and I think mostly comes from above. And I don't fucking hold it against people actually. Um, like the anti-Arab sentiment that has been popular in the United States since the 70s, at least since the 70s, uh, all this fear of the other around that. I Like there's so many people that I thought about growing up with that like, if they, if they could just be in the middle of this scene... <laughs> And I don't know if it makes it. I don't. I, it's, it's there's basically people with trucks and camels listen, playing guitar-based music around fires, barbecuing. It was just like being in the woods and in the country, basically, with, with rednecks and and folks. You know, like yeah. it's just like the same people want the people want the same thing. People. I mean, I'm not. I don't want to like. Uh, 
run roughshod over cultural differences and real cultural differences and like uh but like there's there's just folks you know yeah and it, i mean it seems like like you're saying like an experience like going over there and and seeing that scenery and and, and that musical and just uh communal experience you know there's going to be so much knowledge and growth that you're going to get from just having that experience and I mean you're right you know if if, if some people who are a little more close-minded could just kind of see that you know not not that they're exactly the same but there's a lot more of a, a lot common human thread than yeah. people give us credit for you know yeah that's beautiful man and I, I, I'm really glad you shared that with me um yeah, I can only imagine that, like, as a musician, you know, I, it, you know, I guess, as a musician of any level, you're kind of finding the the moments that mean, you know, you you every musician's dealing with great times and low times, whether it be you know good gigs, bad gigs, something to that degree, or just you know bigger picture stuff. Um, I feel like a lot of musicians are kind of latching on to the to the really great moments like that and I I'm, like you know any moment where the stress of being in a band is worth the headache you know um and something like going over there and recording in that scene and being able to have that unique of an experience could be at I mean it's hard to imagine a much more rewarding experience to validate the time and energy you put into music over the years because that, that's a rare gift to get you know yeah I definitely I I definitely cherish it I cherish it I'm glad to hear it's it it's also man. funny to, to think about like the, and this has not been far from my mind for the past few years anyway just because of the recognition of uh, you know climate change and everything but like I, strugg- I struggled with it for a while because like on one hand I was like the idea that it kept it was like the same argument to me as like the, you gotta recycle and I, I do recycle and I'm happy to but like uh, our recycling isn't nothing compared to like the what the, the waste and pollution of industries and like unregulated waste and pollution of industries and of the military industrial complex and all that like everything is like put on the individual the soul to the individual like we can fix it just by like changing our lifestyle I thought about that a lot as far as travel is concerned you know and I and I uh, on one hand like bristled at, at the idea that I was like feeling guilt about air travel when, like, you know, the U.S. military is one of the largest sources of pollution and carbon emissions in the world, and and all these other things that could be pointed the finger to. Still, air travel, pollution, it's real. It's a major factor. So I've been thinking about it because I've traveled a lot in my life as a musician. And, uh, trying to figure out ways to counteract that that's uh, the project that I was um, 
very embryonically working working on with some friends. Um, <laughs> um, but but uh, the plague has superseded it and uh, right. and shut down travel for the most part, and also is making me think about like what the future of travel is going to be like and. I think it's going to be a lot less and I think it's going to be a lot more constrained. And I think that that's probably a good thing, even though I, there's much more of the world I want to see and places I want to play, you know, like, you know it is what it is. Um, so anyway, that's a digression, but it basically it's making me think about the experiences I have been able to have and really I'm super grateful for them. I'm really glad that I've gotten to play in Japan and gotten to see parts of Australia and and make relationships with people there on the other side of the planet. And you know, it's and it's all been because of music. You know, that I've gotten to see the world as, as much as I've seen it. Yeah, man. I mean, Ed, you know. I I understand where you're coming from and and mulling over your you know your own contribution to you know obviously climate change and and pollution from you know air travel and everything is pretty alarming but I'd say it's it's huge that you're even as thoughtful as you are to be considering how your you know what how your participation in traveling has played a role in that and uh and I think it you know it's good to be keeping it in mind and doing everything you can um but I think half the battle is just being thoughtful enough to care about it and uh so get you know don't be hard on yourselves too much for it because you know you're still being a lot more thoughtful about it than you know a lot of people are um and doing what you can to minimize it um, I appreciate I appreciate that sentiment it's funny though, I was thinking about like, uh, uh, if, a, if a ship is sinking, I, it doesn't matter who's being thoughtful about it. It's <laughs> like ac- action is what actually, yeah. action is what actually would make a difference. Absolutely. Who's man. Survive. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right there, man. And I mean, that's why those actions are important, man. But, you know, it, you could lose your motivation to, to put action in, into motion if you if you get too uh, hard on yourself to the point of like apathy for, or anything for like sure. that. For you sure. Know? For sure. Yeah, it doesn't. But yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm right there with you. I get around town on a bicycle as much as I can and, you know, really it it's never been primarily motivated by uh you know, air pollution, it's just because I, I love riding a bicycle, but it is a really nice takeaway that, you know, every time I'm gathering miles on the bike, scooting around town, I, it's guilt-free, you know, mm-hmm. at least I'm not, you know, I'd feel a lot worse joyriding, wasting, you know, I'm not trying to do that in a car, and mm-hmm. waste gas, I mean, everybody did that when they were a kid, and, you know, definitely whatever, yeah. sneaking yeah. around, doing whatever, but, you know, yeah, I'm with you, man. I mean, action is important. It's easy to get, I mean, specifically when we're talking climate change, it's like, it's an overwhelming concept um, as far as like thinking about how how to put actions in motion that can actually, you know, 
obviously any action, whether it be riding your bike, you know, traveling less, whatever it be, is helpful. But trying to think of like big picture things is is a little overwhelming. Um, not that I think it should discourage people, but it's definitely like, you know, I mean, that, that shit keeps me from wanting to have kids sometimes, you know, I'm like, I'm seeing the changes. We're all seeing it. What are our kids' kids going to be seeing? It's a little intimidating. Um, but, I mean, it's it's good that it scares us because if no one was scared, then nobody would be doing anything, right? Yeah. The, uh, I think uh, there's, some, there's some really inspiring happenings. Like, I don't know, the Wet'suwet'en... blocking of, of pipelines like I don't know the the different native native folk and that I've been turned on to since uh, standing around like there's a this there's some real real examples of like what collective action could look like um, looking at indigenous resistance to um, fossil fuel industries, basically. Right. Yeah, I mean, that's a good thing to look to, to light the fire and show you, show yeah. you what kind of change can really happen as far as it is concerned, you know? There's a lot of big picture stuff that you can play a part in. Well, uh, man, I appreciate you talking to us so much today. Um, I kind of wanted to, this is definitely like a non, uh, no segue shift from, you know, completely unrelated to what we're talking about, but, uh, I like to, to, you know, talk to people about any tour experience they have through the, the little slice of the world that we live in, which is Columbia, South Carolina. Um, and I know that you've played a few solo gigs here over the years. Um, I know you played the White Mule here, yeah, maybe 2010 or something like that. Um, Jolie Holland. Um, that yeah, that that sounds right. Um, yeah, 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 which is awesome. I just watched the the video of you doing Mexico City by by Jolie for the Sounds of Saving Project, and that was really moving, man. And and hearing your uh, your dialogue before the song was really powerful as well, so I appreciate you being a part of a project like that that's doing what they can to try to, you know, shine a positive light and get yeah. people focused on mental health. Um, yeah, that, I think they're doing a good thing. Absolutely, man. Um, that was just a, that was a really enjoyable experience watching that video. Um, but, uh, you know, I just kind of wanted to know if in the in the handful of times that you've been in this part of the world here in Colombia, if you had any like standout experiences, any funny anecdotal or you know not necessarily funny, but just noteworthy experiences with your time here in Colombia. I think I I I wish I could I wish I could give you like a very specific thing. I know that that on that tour, there was some convention center not very far from the venue. 
Yeah, right. It's like a it's like less than a mile from you there. Yeah. And there was some uh seminar going on that was seemed like it was like a scam, you know, <laughs> kind of thing. Like someone like some motivational speaker with like a multi level marketing thing or something. And we me and Gray kind of snuck in there after soundcheck and walked around a little bit until it was obvious that we didn't have the right laminate. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, it, but yeah, it, it, the, the truth of the matter is like, there's, there's a, so little time inside of touring, uh, traditionally in, a, in order for a tour to be able to like, uh, uh, pay for itself at the very least if, if not tear a profit you have to keep moving and keep moving and keep moving and so like I'm almost ashamed to say that like m- most of the time towns just become like the street the van is parked on the menu and a, and a cafe or a diner or something right and right. remember you know yeah, and I mean, that, unless you get a couple days there to really like spread, you know, to stretch your legs and yeah, and or if it's a city it. that you have like peeps in that like keep you informed and take can, take you to the places that you you know yeah, but some of would, it you're just trying to see. refuel, play, get you know, do your part there, and you got to get to the next place or whatever you know. I mean, I I definitely get that too. It's nice when you do get a chance to to like properly experience a town while you're yeah. on the road, but it, you know, it's probably rare. It, that, that, that's been brought into focus for me very clearly by, uh, working with my wife who uh, has a, uh, is a tram system performance Chris loves to live and she's from Estonia and she's been rocking it, uh, with her work. And, uh, we big collaborating since twenty seventeen. And uh so we'll end up in a town for a couple of weeks, like we were just in Berlin before the lockdown for for a couple of weeks. And before that we were in Mexico City for a month and we spent most of the summer in Mexico City. So there are like places in buying <clears throat> like we were in Paris for a show she was a part of last spring and like just being in Paris for four or five days made it clear to me that even though I had been there countless times to play gigs, I feel like I had never been to Paris until I was there enough to like get to know a neighborhood, you know? Oh, yeah. And, and the same with Berlin, the same with Mexico City, the same with like. So there's all these places that like I've, I've been to, but have, have I really been there? Yeah. yeah right. You've experienced the club and and the and the crowd, and but you haven't really experienced the town, you know. Yeah. I'm glad you got that time with your wife to to go and actually get a little more familiar with Paris. And you know, it sounds like when you were recording with Tanara, when you got to, you know, get a little bit more of a a real taste of what what that world is like as well you know that's, for, that was more sure. than a stop so I'm glad that you've had those times to really yeah, be able to honestly, appreciate I places find when you're touring in places like that are 
Like, I got to go to South Africa a couple of years ago to play music. And uh, even though I was there for two weeks, so I only played, like, four gigs, maybe, and I got to see all these talent and hang out in the Western Cape, and that was amazing. And in Brazil, I've done some touring down there and stayed there for a couple of months. I haven't been there for a while, but, like, there you can't. You can't go from city to city night after night. It's like it has to be slower paced because it's so spread out. Not like the states, you know. And uh, I mean, in some ways, that's a dream to be able to. Yeah, it's a dream. You, I, you don't I, have to overwork, as you know your you know your voice, your your hands, everything. You're not you know. Yeah. They're as far as a performer. Not doing it every there's something to be said about not doing it every single night too, you know. You're gonna not yeah, be one abs- not gonna be worn the fuck out, you know. Absolutely. Uh, plus like I mean, I don't know, when you have if you have a night off for every night on as far as work as a as a musician, uh you're gonna you know, your night's on, you're gonna be rested and ready to hit it again and not the- quite as homesick, you know. You have some time to just relax and enjoy the atmosphere. For sure, but there is also something to be said about playing every night because then it just becomes like muscle memory and then something else starts to come through that right. can be pretty pretty amazing. That's true. and But uh, I guess, uh, you know, because of the tour experience you've had, you've, you've, you've been able to hone those chops of, all right, we're hitting it every night and we're, we're like a fine-tuned machine. And you know that you can get to that level, which is, you know, what every musician's hopeful for as far as their you know their ability to be consistent but you know at the point that you're at in your career it's probably nice to have some times where it's like you know we know that we can do that so if we have one that's like a little more leisure pace then you know i'm off i'm sure you're all for it just to not you know, yeah just to have a breather you know you, you guys have been super productive meeting you and, and all of your peers musically uh for so long that you know, however you pace yourself seems appropriate to me. But uh, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Uh, I I don't not frame it except to say that. Oh yeah, there's a record that I want you to check out yeah. that I I worked on a couple of years ago. Uh, there's a, a woman from New Orleans who lives in Brooklyn named Erin Durant, and she has a record called Islands on Killed Scales. Hell yeah, man! And uh, I, I'm proud of her, and I'm proud of that record. And you know, what what kind of what kind of musical territory she, are you exploring there? She she is a pianist and a singer, and she has very much like her feet in uh, kind of like seventies. There's like there's like some I don't want to say overt referencing, but like definitely from the time the first time she played a song in my kitchen for friends, people were making like uh, Johnny Mitchell references, but there's also like some definite like nods to the band and like oh, nice. this. It's it's definitely more like. I don't think she likes this description, but Americana. Um, 
I think she likes to be more space age or something. But like, I feel like everybody I, does. It, that's one of those genres where like it can be done so well and so amazingly and movingly. But yet, most people who are who are doing it are uh, a little scared of the title too, because it does. You know, it sometimes it can paint a picture that isn't entirely accurate, but it's not. Yeah, it's still more fitting than calling it, you know, a rock album or whatever else. But that's just the trouble of genres. Everybody hates the one they fall into, you know. For sure. Oh, uh, for sure. Well, dude, I'm definitely gonna check that out. Thanks for the for the recommendation. And and uh, on a on a similar note, something I I'd like to recommend to you, which you may you may have already been checking out, but just you describing that music uh, kind of brought it to mind. We we had a guest on the show recently. Her name's June Millington. She's in a band. Uh, mostly based out of the 70s, uh, called Fanny, and they opened for everybody. I mean, they opened for Bowie and you know just whoever was kind of popping off at the time, and they made, I want to say, like three or four records, um, and they have this video that's, that's on a, something, it was on a show called Beat Club back in the day that's kind of recently gone viral. Um, but, man, it is incredible. Like, I, I put it on, and every player in the band is just so talented and, you know, basically virtuosic within the the genre that they're flirting with. And uh, Say the name of their band again. It's called Fanny, F-A-N-N-Y. Um, oh, yeah. I, I just, when we when we got her on the show, I, you know, I, I was really diving into her records and it's just, there's so much to appreciate there. And I, I went from a casual fan to a, a pretty serious fan quick so if you if you yeah, want to... I'll check it out I'm looking at the record cover on my phone right now from hey, the 72 record I definitely never heard them that's dude check it out look up the look up those beat club videos too I mean they're just I mean every single player in that band is just getting it man like the keys player is you know she's mostly doing piano and like ham and stuff and she's just absolutely shredding and they're kind of underappreciated considering how awesome they were man and she was a really awesome guest and really uh you know just had a lot of interesting things to say about her time in the industry you know the 70s were a pretty different time as far as the entertainment industry is concerned yeah it seems like it would have been a wild time to be be in it yeah for sure uh but Anyways, man, you know, I appreciate all the suggestions and you being so uh, gracious with your time today, man. Um, I don't want to keep you any longer because you've been uh, talking to me and letting me ramble about bands that I love for a while now. But uh, And it's great talking to you, man, and uh, I guess I hope you guys you know, are able to keep your minds right and stay safe and well with all that's going on. Yeah, likewise. Uh, happy quarantining. Absolutely, man. Same to you, and uh, we'll we'll send you this episode when we get it all edited, and and that way you can check it out, and you know, let us know what you yeah. think. <laughs> yeah, please do. Alrighty, man. Well, uh, keep doing what you're doing. I I'm really excited to hear anything and everything you're working on, and uh, it's great getting to talk to you, man. Likewise, have a good day. You too. See you, kid. This has been a Comfort Monk production. <laughs>